Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. 
The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For I, again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's word. Well, it's my uh, great privilege and one of the joys of my life to be able to bring the Word of God to the people of God. It's something that I dreamed about for many, many years, and I'm grateful to the Lord for allowing me to do it. Today, um, as Lindsay mentioned, we wrap up our study of the first 12 chapters of the book of John, and what a rich time we've had together in this book. Excuse me, when I get to heaven... I'm going to look up John's address and walk over to his mansion and tell him, thank you for writing this amazing biography of the Lord Jesus Christ that has done so much to shape my mental image of Jesus. Just think back for a minute on what we've seen in the first 11 chapters of this book. Think about the miraculous signs, seven of them, turning water into wine, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man feeding the 5,000, walking on water, giving that blind man his sight, raising Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs, or signposts, really, meant to point people to the only reasonable conclusion about this man, that he was actually God in the flesh. Think about some of the stunning statements that he made. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must, you must be born again. I mean, those are amazing statements, aren't they? Think about all the witness who gave testimony supporting the claims of Jesus. Think about John the Baptist who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about Andrew who said, We have found the Messiah. We found him. Or Philip who said, we have found him of of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. 
And then there was Nathanael's testimony when he looked at Jesus and said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nicodemus said, you are a teacher, come from God. The woman at the well said, I perceive that you're a prophet. The Samaritans said, we know <clears throat> that this is indeed the savior of the world. And then remember Peter's great confession? When Jesus looked at his disciples and said, will you leave also? And Peter said, to who else are we gonna go to? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Think about the promises Jesus made that we've seen in the book of John. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up again. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will not be condemned but have everlasting life. Who says stuff like this? I'll tell you who. A man who believes he's God. And John's contention all throughout this book is that those claims were all validated and verified by Jesus' life and by his works and deeds. And he proved that he was not a liar and not a lunatic, but he was the Lord. He was who he claimed to be, right? And now as we come to chapter 12, John is going to add several more brush strokes to this stunning portrait of Jesus that he's been painting. And the chapter breaks down kind of like this. First, we're eavesdropping on a dinner party, a celebration of life in honor of Lazarus, who was dead and is now alive again. And of course, in honor of Jesus as well. And then the scene shifts a little bit. We're given a glimpse into the triumphal entry when Jesus is uh, arriving in Jerusalem for Passover. Third time Passover is mentioned in this book and the final one. And then the tone kind of changes and we see Jesus predicting his, his death, his execution and explaining the significance of it. And then John, the writer, kind of inserts himself and gives a summary statement about the Jewish nation's rejection of Jesus, and then finally Jesus restates and affirms his mission, why he came. And so doing, he honors his father. And so what really we see in this chapter is Jesus' public ministry coming to an end. The religious leaders have already turned against him. The Jewish nation, by and large, is, is souring on him. His execution is near. But we learn again that this does not foil God's plan, right? Israel's rejection of their promised Messiah was actually part of the plan because the Messiah came to die. We learn that in his death, God would be glorified and Satan would be defeated. The sins of the world would be judged. And believing Gentiles would be enabled to enter his fold. And the eternal destiny of all of his sheep would be secured forever. And so we praise God for what happens here. Well, let's see how John portrays Jesus in this chapter. First, and if you haven't pulled your study guide out yet, go ahead and do that so you can follow along with me. The first thing we see is a, a portrait, a picture of Jesus as the one who is worthy of extravagant worship. The one who is worthy of extravagant worship. So the chapter begins with this celebration of life party, as I said, thrown 
in honor of Lazarus. And at the party, Lazarus' sister Mary does something that seems kind of strange to us. She goes and she retrieves a a flask, an alabaster flask containing about a half liter of very expensive perfume, likely imported from northern India, uh, perhaps a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. So she, she gets it and she brings it into the room and she breaks it open and Matthew and Mark tell us that she pours it on Jesus' head and then on his feet. Then she lets down her hair, which would have, in that culture would have been a very brazen act, and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the sweet fragrance of the spilled perfume fills the whole house. And certainly all the guests would have said, sweet, wow, what's that, where's that coming from? Well, Judas Iscariot is there, Judas. And he reacts to this, right? And Basically, he lambasts Mary for being so wasteful. He says, hey, that perfume could have been sold for a year's wages, and the proceeds could have been used to help the poor. Of course, that was a farce. He didn't care about the poor. John records he liked to help himself to the money bag every now and then. He wanted to make sure there was adequate supply. Well, Jesus rebukes Judas. Think about that for a minute. And in essence, he says, Mary was right to do this because she was symbolically anointing him for his burial. And so right in the middle of this celebration of life, this celebration of a dead man coming to life again, a shadow is cast over the scene because a living man is declaring that he's about to die. In fact, symbolism abounds at this party, whether they realized it or not. The broken flask is a picture of what? Jesus' soon-to-be-crushed body from which the sweet aroma of life will flow out to many people. But the pungent fragrance is also, in a sense, masks the stench of death that will soon permeate everything. Really, these dinner guests are being given a preview of Jesus' own funeral, aren't they? And that, and that, that theme of death and his, his dying is really a subtext that runs all throughout this chapter. But you know what? There's something else here that we should not miss, and it's this. What's going on in this room on this day is worship. Worship. The poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me, Jesus said. This is a statement about his supreme worth, is it not? And what others might view as being wasteful, he viewed as appropriate, fitting. It was a good thing to pour out $25,000 worth of perfume on him. He is worthy of such lavishness. And so we learn that extravagance in worshiping Jesus is not over the top, it's appropriate. Appropriate for one such as this who would die for the sins of the world. And uh, as we envision Mary's act of humble adoration and pouring out that perfume, we're all left to wonder in our own hearts, what costly thing have I given to the Lord that reflects his immense value and preciousness and worth? What precious thing am I pouring out for the one who has loved me so much? 
And so we see in Mary a picture of worshipers of all ages, right? Who deem Jesus Christ more precious than any valued possession they might own. And so he alone, he alone is supremely worthy of extravagant worship. That's what John wants us to see by including this story. Now that's followed by another scene that has a very different vibe. Number two is we see Jesus accepting the mantle of Messiah, King. It was short-lived, but he accepted it. Verse 12, the next day, so the very next day after the dinner party, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Talking about the Passover feast now. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And this day we call what? We celebrate it as what? Palm Sunday, that's right. And when I envision in my mind that scene with all of the palm branches waving and the throng of adoring fans, it sure doesn't feel like Jesus is gonna be standing trial within five days with these very same people on that day cursing him and shouting at Pilate, let his blood be on us and on our children, crucify him, crucify him. For the moment here, the crowds are enthralled with Jesus. And their shouts of praise reflect their conviction, at least for the moment. Didn't last long. For the moment, they believe that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, which Jews had historically applied to Messiah. They're saying, here he is. And as Jesus rides into town on a donkey in fulfillment of another prophecy, you know Jesus' life and death and resurrection fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, including this one from Zechariah chapter nine. As he rides into town, the crowd goes wild with anticipation. Our king is coming. He's coming to claim his throne and, and finally get rid of those awful Romans who've been oppressing us for all these years. Finally, finally. And of course, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are standing back, kind of observing all of this, and they're growing more anxious by the minute, and they're thinking, nothing we're doing is working. We can't do anything to stop the Jesus train here. John tells us that some Gentiles had even showed up for this festival and they were trying to get an audience with Jesus and the Pharisees saw that and, and they lament, look, the whole world is flocking after this guy. What do we do? And then Jesus begins to speak. He says his disciples are there around him in the crowd and they're leaning in. And, but what he says seems strange. I mean, it's supposed to be a celebration, right? A coronation. It seems out of place. Crowds are cheering all around him, but obviously Jesus' mind is elsewhere. He's thinking about how everything would change in a mere five days. And now John presents him as the one who would bring glory to God by dying. Number three, what does Jesus say? Well, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I imagine the crowd's thinking, yes! Jesus, glory, 
Glory, that's what we want. The return of our glory days. Bring on the glory. So we've always wanted a glorious king who will go out and fight our battles for us and drive away our enemies and return our prosperity and reign in majesty. Yes, glory. And then Jesus says, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I'm thinking the crowd's going, huh? What? What's glorious about that? You can just feel all the air gets sucked right out of the place. Crowd is thinking power, prominence, prestige, and Jesus is thinking abandonment, suffering, agony. They think it's the hour of coronation. He knows it's the hour of rejection. People are concerned and consumed with the glory that comes through political might. But Jesus is consumed with the glory that comes through weakness and surrender. He knows that the hour of his demise will be the hour of God's greatest glory. And so in verse 28, he cries out, Father, glorify your name. And a voice comes back. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so in the death of Jesus, the Father will glorify the Son, and the Son will glorify the Father. That's what Jesus was saying. And amazingly, Jesus there, with the crowd all around him, goes on to explain the many ways that this would happen. And I want all of us to be aware of of what he said. Seven ways that God would be glorified through the death of Jesus. First, God would be glorified in Jesus' death bearing much fruit. In Jesus' death bearing much fruit. He said, if the seed falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. What's he saying? Well, he's looking ahead a, a few days, isn't he? And he's, he's expressing that one man was gonna die and be buried in the ground, but like a seed, the life principle within him would be irrepressible and would spring up from the ground and produce life-giving fruit that would nourish many, 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 many people. Much fruit arising from one death, and Jesus said that glorifies God. And then he said God would be glorified in the devotion of his followers, in the the death-defying devotion of Jesus' followers. In verse 25, Jesus declares that his true followers will magnify his glory by imitating his example of valuing eternal life over this temporal life. They're gonna glorify him by loving him more than life itself and being willing to follow him down the path that he was taking, which I've heard called the Calvary Road. We're gonna come back and talk about that in a few few moments. And then third, God would also be glorified in Jesus' undeterred resolve to fulfill his purpose. Think about it. Remember the crowds all around him? It's kind of quieted down now. The tone has changed. Verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Listen to me. No one in history has ever even come close to facing the depth of agony that Jesus was looking at. 
You think about the emotional pain of being despised and rejected and abandoned even by his closest friends. Add to that the excruciating physical pain of being scourged, which was being whipped with a 39 times with a cat of nine tails whip, shredding his back, and then being crucified. So that pain, physical pain, added to emotional pain. But then think about this, think about becoming sin. Like pure holiness cloaked in sin for the first time ever, we can't even imagine that agony. Think about being forsaken by his father for the first and only time in history. Think about experiencing hell for everybody. Think about being punished for a trillion sins. We can't even get close to imagining the agony of that. My soul is troubled. I guess so. I guess so. But did he bail? Did he bail out of the plan? Did he, did he turn, did he veer to the right or to the left? Or did he power through the hardest thing ever faced and in so doing bring glory to his father and to himself? Praise God for this. I can just hear the father say, son, you are worth all the glory I will give you since you're willing to pay such a great price in laying down your life for our sheep. And I can hear the son responding back, father, to me it's worth any cost see your righteousness vindicated in forgiving guilty sinners who repent. God was massively glorified by Jesus' resolve to go through with the plan. And then he was glorified also in the Father's verbal public affirmation of Jesus that I just read moments ago. It was the third time the Father had spoken from heaven with people around saying, you know, this is my son. (laughs) The voice came again. Number five, he was glorified in judging the sins of the world in Jesus' crucified body. Number six, he would be glorified in decisively defeating Satan. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Think about it, Satan's chief weapon against humans is death. Satan's chief weapon against humans is death. What did God use to disarm Satan and his chief weapon? Death. He killed death by dying. That magnifies the superiority of the wisdom of God over the wisdom of Satan or the the wisdom of humanity, does it not? It's amazing. Through his son's dying, God would provide eternal life to all who would believe. A seed would drop into the ground and die, but bear much fruit. And this glorifies God. Glory to God. And then number seven, God would be glorified in drawing all people to himself. Verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And so Jesus is the one who would bring immense glory to God by being willing to die Why? So that God's justice would be satisfied, so that his grace in saving sinners would be magnified, so his enemies would be mortified, and so people like you and me would be justified and still singing his praises centuries later. 
And so John portrays Jesus in this chapter as the one worthy of extravagant worship, the promised Messiah King of Israel, the one who would glorify God in his death, and number four, as the light, but the soon to be extinguished light of the world. Jesus said in verse 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. This is so like Jesus, isn't it? Still reaching out, still offering light to people who are groping around in the darkness, still pleading with them to believe still offering himself to them, but he knew the light was about to go out. Then a final portrait arises from his own concluding words in this chapter. Just listen as I read the last few verses. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Sounds familiar? I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So what we see here is Jesus portrayed as the one who speaks for God and the one who came to save the world. What a portrait this is of Jesus Christ. What a Savior he is. What a Lord. What a King. And I pray that if you have never yet given your whole life to Jesus Christ, given your whole heart to Jesus Christ in response to who he is and what he has done, that you will. That you will. That's why John wrote this book, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name and be born again and have your sins forgiven. I mean, what could be more important for you than that? Now there's something here for us that I feel the Lord impressed upon me as I was preparing and and I think God wants to show us something today. There's a pattern here that shows us God's ways in dealing with his people. I want you to take the little card out that's in your worship folder. It says, I'm ready to surrender this dream back to God and I just hold on to it and as I'm talking the next few moments, I want you to think about that because lately I've had a lot of similar sounding conversations with a number of new lifers. And the conversations have gone something like this. Pastor Steve, I'm kind of confused and frustrated because it's just not happening for me like I thought it was gonna happen. (laughs) I'm not real sure what to make of God right now. You see, I really believe that God had given me a dream. 
I really believe that a month ago, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, God had given me a vision of, of something that he wanted for me, something that he wanted for my future. I thought for sure that he was leading us to start a family or start a ministry or start our own business. I, f- I felt that I'd heard from God and that he was gonna use me in a certain way or open up a certain door for me or us. He was gonna provide a certain opportunity and it was gonna be great and it was gonna give me a platform to praise him to other people and tell the story. I've had a dream to, to help people in a, a certain way, a unique way, something that's coming out of my heart or, or I've had a dream to go into the ministry or as many shared last night, I've, I've had a dream to be a missionary, to go somewhere else in the world and, and share Christ with people. Or I've had a, a dream to start a Bible study at work and be a light at, at the place where I work. Or, or I have a dream to be married. Or to have children, have a family. Or I have a dream to see my prodigal children come back to God and, and love the Lord that I love. Or I have a dream, a vision of my family being reconciled. We've been estranged for a while, or or I've been estranged from my siblings, or my children, or my parents, and I have this dream that God was gonna bring it all back together and it was gonna be wonderful. I've had this dream, Pastor. I've had this picture in my mind, this hope for the future, and I really thought it was from God, and it's it's stayed with me all these years, and, and I've been praying, and I've been working to see it happen, but it's not happening. And uh, I'm starting to lose heart. And to be honest, I, I'm kind of disappointed with God because it's not happening. I had a lot of conversations like that. And my first thought is always, you know, I've been in that boat too. I felt that. And what we're really saying is I, I, I can't figure God out. I don't understand him. I don't understand his ways. I don't understand why he does what he does and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. I I can't figure him out. What I've come to believe is that here in John chapter 12, we're given a glimpse into the ways of God. We're shown a pattern for how God the Father works in the lives of his children because it was also the way he worked in the life of his only begotten son, Jesus. Think about it, God the Father had given God the Son a dream, hadn't he, a a vision of of a kingship, a kingdom, a glory, a dominion, a a dream of having a, a royal family to reign with him forever, an eternal inheritance to enjoy together. But that dream would not be automatic. It would not be immediate. Instead, there would be this path that the Son of God would need to travel in order to see that dream fulfilled, and the old-timers called that path the Calvary Road. And so Jesus' path would lead through an upper room and a Gethsemane and onto a hill called Golgotha, and that kingdom dream that he carried in his heart would first be nailed to a cross with him, it would be buried in a cold, dark tomb with him, and it would seem to have died before it would ever be raised to life. And I think we need to understand this because 
Jesus' pathway was meant to reveal God's pattern for how he also leads us. Jesus himself said so. Listen to his words again. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it does die, it bears much fruit. Now, obviously, he's speaking of who there? Himself, right? Of his own impending death and resurrection. But then he applies that pattern more broadly to all of his followers. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what was he saying? He was saying, look, in order to live, really live, you must first die. Like me, like the seed, just like me, lose your life in order to gain life, hate your life now to keep it forever. He said, go with me wherever I go, Gethsemane, Calvary, the tomb. You serve me by being with me. And if you do, my Father will honor you. And many Bible scholars down through the centuries have noted the pattern of God's ways that are revealed here that was true for Jesus and it's true for Jesus' followers. Maybe you've heard this before. Birth of a vision, death of a vision, death of a dream, and then supernatural resurrection of that vision. So think about this for a minute. Birth of a vision. First, like with Jesus, God plants within his people's heart a picture of the future that ignites us with passion. God is showing us what he wants for us and, 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 and we see it and it fires up our hearts, doesn't it? It gives us hope and we're convinced it's from him. This is from God. He's gonna do this. But then so often what happens is over time, the dream seems to die. There's no movement. Nothing's happening. Prayers aren't being answered and some friends think we're crazy, you know, for holding on to it. And when we see it's not happening, we might even start scheming how we can kind of make it happen and take matters into our own hands. But it seems to die, the death of a dream, of a vision. But finally, in God's time, there's the supernatural fulfillment of that vision where, where we let it go and he makes it happen and he gets all the glory and the joy is worth all the weight and all the pain. Now, if you don't think this is legit, I just want you to think back on some of the prominent characters in the Bible and their lives. And if you do, you'll see this pattern. Birth of a vision, death of a vision, supernatural resurrection of the vision. You'll see that playing out over and over and over again. Think about Abraham. Abram was his name, right? It means father, but he had no kids. And God gave Abram the vision of being what? The father of, of a great nation with many, 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 many descendants, innumerable descendants. But after decades of nothing, nothing happen, happening, barrenness, Abraham and his wife Sarah became impatient, didn't they? Because the dream seemed to be dead and they started to scheme, how can we make this happen? 
And they did it their way with disastrous results. And they had to come to a point where they let the dream die and take their hands off it and stop trying to make it happen. And then decades later, in God's timing, he made it happen for his glory. Think about Joseph. As a teenager, he received a real dream, an actual dream, that one day he would be this patriarchal leader of his family and they would honor him. Problem was, he wasn't, as a teenager, he was not yet the kind of person who could live out that dream for the glory of God. Then after a long series of unfortunate events, he found himself floundering in prison, unjustly accused of a crime he didn't commit, and then totally forgotten, and it certainly looked to him, I imagine, like the dream had died, right? Seriously, God? Why am I here in prison? But 20 years later, after God had molded this man into a true servant leader who trusted God, the Lord brought the vision to pass, didn't he? He became that honored leader of his family. Think about Moses. Moses. All fired up, right? To deliver his people, his own enslaved Jewish people from Pharaoh's rule. But he tried to do it his own way, in his own strength, in his own time frame. He he tried to make it happen and God had to do what? He basically had to relocate Moses on the backside of a desert where nobody knew him. No one was impressed by his credentials for 40 years where he learned to take care of sheep. And there, in total obscurity, God was transforming the arrogant prince of Egypt into a shepherd leader who would be the kind of man who when he heard the voice of God from that burning bush saying, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt and into the promised land. He was the kind of person then because he'd been refined and sanctified by God in obscurity who could lead the people the way God would have him to lead it. So over and over again, think of Esther and her story. Think of Hannah and her dream of having a child and the dream was dead, wasn't it? Think of David, the shepherd boy who was anointed king but but wouldn't have the throne for years, for decades. Think of Peter, who had that vision of being Jesus, you know, stalwart wingman. I'll always stand up for you, Jesus. And the dream died in a sea of denials. Seemed to die. Think of the disciples and their dream of reigning with Jesus in a kingdom and they saw that dream nailed to a cross and buried in a tomb. Birth of a vision, death of a vision, supernatural resurrection of a vision for the glory of God. You see, the seed has to fall to the ground and die before it can bear much fruit. We must follow Christ into Gethsemane where we agonize over it until we we give it to God and say, not my will, but your will be done. It's your dream. You make it happen in your way and in your time, God. We must follow Christ down the Via Dolorosa to Calvary with other people taking us where we don't want to go and everything being stripped away and God seeming to have forsaken us. Where are you, God? And then we must follow him into the cold, dark tomb. Lifeless, no movement. And we must wait through Friday 
and through Saturday and grieve the loss of the dream. It's dead, buried, it's not happening. And we ask why, why, why does the dream have to die? Well, technically the dream doesn't have to die, we have to die. We have to die to it. We have to acknowledge that it's still too much about us. We need to see the futility of trying to pull it off in our own strength. We need to be refined in obscurity on the backside of the desert till we're the kind of people who can live that dream for the glory of God. We need to be treated unfairly at times so that our trust becomes grounded in him alone. God wills to sanctify us, but in so doing, he wants to extract all the me out of me before he fulfills that vision that he gave. You see, the dream doesn't die, but we must die to our own version of it, die to our own timetable, die to making it happen the way we wanna see it happen through our own efforts. We have to take our hands off it, place it back into God's hands where it originated. After all, it was his dream in the first place, right? Now you know why I had you pull out that card earlier. If if your dream is of the flesh, if it's purely of human imagination, and God wants it to die, then it will die, it'll remain in the grave, if it's just of you. But if it's truly from God, If it's from God, he's gonna fulfill it in his way and in his time and your role is to take your hands off and yield it, surrender it back to God and say, you do it, Lord, for your glory and in your time. So one man said, almost every significant thing that God births, he first allows to die before the vision can be fulfilled in his way and his time. And so I wonder today, What dream do you believe that God gave you at some point in your past that hasn't come to fruition yet? Something about your life, your family, your work, your mission, your ministry, something about your relationships, your future. Hasn't happened yet, hasn't come to pass. In fact, it looks like it's dead. Looks like it's just not gonna happen. And I believe that God wants me to challenge you to surrender that dream back to God. You know, he's a better custodian of that dream than you are. He is. He's been waiting for you to surrender it back to him. Will you take your hands off and stop fretting over it and stop being mad at God for not making it happen? and stop scheming to try to make it happen and just release it and give it back to him? God is calling a number of you today to do that very thing. And then, if he chooses to bring it to pass, then your joy will be fully in him and he'll get all the glory for it and you'll have a story to tell that'll magnify Christ, which is what The intent has been all along. And so today I'm inviting you to do just that. To write your dream down on that card and if you're ready and feel that tug, that pull to just 
surrender it back to God, then I'm gonna say to symbolize that, come and lay that card in that basket at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, symbolizing you saying, Jesus, this is yours, I'm taking my hands off, I'm seeing it now nailed to the cross. Do with it what you will, bring it about if you will, in your way, in your timing, for your glory. I'm taking my hands off the dream. And if you're ready to do that, I pray you'll take a moment and write down that dream on that card and then when I'm done praying that you'll come. Maybe you want to linger for a bit or even kneel and just say, Lord, this is yours. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing, incredible book of John. Thank you for the portrait of Jesus that's been painted for us. I pray all of us in our minds now have a more accurate picture of who Jesus really is. Lord, I thank you for the pattern that you took your own son through to achieve his kingdom dream, which is still coming in its full fulfillment. Lord, I thank you that Jesus applied it to his followers. And Lord, you know I've been praying this week that you would prompt many, many in this room this morning to surrender their dream back to you. I pray that in that surrender, they would find a peace and a joy that they didn't have when they were clutching onto it and trying to make it happen. May they trust you with their dreams that you've given them, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.